welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resonant Advisor. This week's exchange is with Conks on Pax, one of electronic music's finest designers. His saturated aesthetic has appeared on sleeves and videos for One of Tricks Point Never and Quato, but he's an accomplished music producer in his own right. He's just released his second LP for Planet Moo, and when he dropped by RA's Berlin office, he told me about how the language of design and music production cross over in his work, and how touring the world with Lone has broadened his horizons. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Conks on Pax is up next. don't know if there's the right terminology but I'm interested in ghost melodies almost I like certain music that allows because the way it was produced it almost allows the listener to invent their own melodies over the top because of how the frequencies interact like I know one of my favorite groups Soviet France they are just like the masters of creating music that you can sort of hear things within it that don't actually exist I think it was Sean from Autechre said that he likes how they suggest melody. They don't actually, it's not overtly melodic. It's almost like you're hallucinating while we're listening to it. It's quite really suggestive and subtle. Um, so yeah, I'm into like more into textures and how non-musical sound sources can create melodies. Like if you're on underground, I'm always listening to the screeching of trains and oh, that would be great. I wish I had a contact mic to record that. I also like when I'm writing tracks, the windows to my bedroom are always open. So I've always got street noise coming in and occasionally a bus will go past and it's in the right pitch. It's in the same pitch. And I'm like, oh, that's, and it just came in randomly. But then I try and remember to put something in at that time. So it's an, a lot of chaos going on. I remember hearing Arthur Russell when he was writing music, he'd always have a food blender on or the TV on in the background while he was writing music just to create an ambience to influence him somehow. When there's lots of stuff going on, it also allows you to not concentrate too much on what you're making, so it's more of a subconscious way of producing stuff. Bringing the outside in in this sort of way, what's appealing with that apart from creating an ambience? You know, you're talking about like, oh, I heard a a bus outside and I'm going to use that as a cue to like put something on top of it. That's very different to someone, you know, thinking about bars and structures and things like that yeah this record was like heavily sequenced and played and i'm sort of getting a bit bored of that now my friend told me about yeah there's a feature in max or live for ableton called lfo midi that allows you to draw your own lfo which just out outputs numbers like from zero to hundred and then you can assign that to any parameter within it's like generative, so you can have predetermined sine waves influencing, say, the cutoff of a synth, 
or how random a sequence or plays so it's more automatic and it it kind of reminds me of basic channel or steve reich you just just goes in cycles so you can like spend a bit of time working out the math and then just hit a button and it it runs and everything sort of loops in and out of sequences and then i go back and edit that so it's just a, a different way of working rather than just sitting there going hitting that note that note that note yeah i try and keep things interesting for myself mm. in terms of how i get the content for the music because i've read that at least with the album before this one some of the sound sources came from pretty interesting areas and you're talking about you know recording things out of laptop speakers yeah i use like the mac laptop speakers are really great it's the equivalent of using a tape deck in a way because you get a layer of hiss and the compression is a bit rubbish so i remember recording an old yamaha synth through a guitar amp and then into the laptop speakers and then slowing that down so it's just a really deteriorated, crunchy, lovely, half-digital, half-analog kind of effect to it. Because I do a lot of visual work at the same time as the music work, the terminology is really interchangeable with Photoshop or Logic. You're, I mean, I'm dealing with texture, colour, hues, because music to me is very visual in my head. I see things in lumps, kind of weird abstract shapes that have a volume, like they have a mass, they have a texture and they have a colour. Aphex Twin's quite autumnal and red and yellow for me, that's how I see it. Mm. Um, it's just easier to think like that and I do get mixed up between visual software and audio software sometimes. This is why I was so happy to discover the LFO MIDI in Ableton because in Cinema 4D you can apply vibrate and LFO functions to create random movement so it just outputs numbers and you can attach those numbers to a circle to make it move about and I was like I wish you could do that in music so I don't need to program anything I just want something to chuck out some numbers to make something else do that so it's like it's nice to be able to jump between two different bits of software but apply the same methodology behind it all. Mm. It's interesting that you can say specific like centers of mass and color to do with sounds because, you know, obviously you work with a lot of musicians on visual stuff as well. Yeah. And I guess a lot of them don't have like such a developed vocabulary when it comes to sound it in a can visual be a sense. A bit frustrating. I do have to like <laughs> hold my tongue a few times. I mean, there's definitely been a few times when I've been working with musicians and it's like maybe a sleeve or a video and they just struggle to try and describe what they want. I just have to be quite patient and go through the long process of creating something, showing it to them. Is this right? No, it needs to be more something. And I'm like, it's just a long process sometimes, but we get there in the end. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Before you went to art school, what sort of visual work were you doing yourself before you went into an academic context with it? Well... I spent, I pretty much spent most, like, from fourth year to sixth year in high school just hanging about in the art department. Like, I more or less didn't turn up to quite a lot of the other subjects because I just didn't see the point. Like, I had no interest in doing anything remotely academic. It was just all I knew was that I wanted to draw and make... No, yeah, I mean, music was always there, but it wasn't... I didn't study music in high school I actually befriended the head of music purely to go in and get a copy of Logic. And I 
borrowed it, inverted commas, <laughs> and I took, took an instruction manual home and installed it onto my computer and learned how to use Logic. And like no one was making electronic music in our school. I was the only one that was really interested in it. But my high school art teacher put me on to Tomato, it's Cowhide from Underworld. So that I think that was my first connect of all music and graphic design. And I had a really cool art teacher, uh, Bob Murray. He was kind of one of the most important people to have sort of influenced me. He was really anti-establishment, hated all the other teachers and was like, right, you're going to get into art school. I'm going to make sure you get into art school. It was just encouraged me to look into graphic design and listen to music. And so it was the first connect between techno and graphic design was when I was like 16, I think. Yeah, right. And I was just really into that and I've not really stopped since. So when you say drawing, are you talking about with pen or pencil on paper? Sort yeah, of yeah. well, I loved uh, tech drawing in high school. Like I was quite interested in doing 3D drawings of things and building models. I built, I remember for a fourth year project, I built a giant scale replica of my G-Shock watch. And like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really into my Casio at the time and... Yeah, I loved that, and I've always drawn. I've always used a computer to draw stuff since even before primary school. Because it's quite lucky that my dad's a landscape architect, and back in the late '80s, just for work, he we were able to have like one of the early Apple Mac computers in the house, which was a really good thing. It was quite a privilege to be able to have access to. I think it was the. Apple Classic 2 or something so it had the paint program and I just remember thinking it was great being able to draw pictures on the computer I remember the first time I got to use a colour computer was just like wow look at check out all these bright greens and bright purples I pretty much use the same five colours that I've used since it was five like the first the first five colours you get on the swatch like the bright magenta the bright green the bright yellow and that nice kind of turquoisey blue that's pretty much been my palette for the last 25 years. So when you're putting like inputs in these early programs, I'm just wondering like, how would you draw a line? Is this like clicking down and dragging or like inputting oh, data no. for things to it, be done? It was, I mean, these early paint, I think it was Apple Draw or Claris Works. It was, yeah, it was what you see is what you get. It was like quite, just like Photoshop nowadays. You just right. drag and drop and use the paintbrush tool. It was really primitive at the time. I remember using, starting on Adobe Photoshop 2.0. That was early 90s, I think. And I just used to make really daft, psychedelic lens flare, alien drawings and stuff like that. I spent a lot of my childhood drawing trainers and mountain bikes. I just used to get my auntie's case catalogue and copy all the Nike Air Max trainers. Like, that was what I did. (laughs) Was there a point in art school where you had to get out of the computer with your design work or has it always been based in that? Um, art school was a funny one because first, first year was kind of like going back to nursery school. Mm. Like we just had really fun, simple projects. It was great fun. We, it was all quite lighthearted. And then second year was a bit of a shock because you just get left to your own devices. There's not much tuition. And to be honest, I nearly failed second year. Like I managed to just pass because I didn't, I basically didn't do any work and wasn't interested. And it was only when I hit third year that my tutors encouraged me to look at people like John Cage or the Fluxus artist because it was more tied to music and how to 
create music visually and got into sort of discovered what a visual score was and I started to make sort of interactive projects using Flash and I discovered Japanese sound artist Yasunao Tone. I remember doing this cool project where he draws onto CDs and then plays them back and they corrupt and create, they skip and they create new compositions from that. So I had a really fun project recording classical music onto CD and then drawing on it. And then I documented the whole thing in a flash site so you could go in and click a CD and see what that drawing would do to the music. And that was really cool. I was so glad that I could actually do music and art and visual stuff at the same time. And that's where I started to do a wee bit more animation stuff, like traditional kind of rotoscoping. I would film things and then trace each frame. Yeah, that's how I ended up doing that technique for warp for the... Jamie Liddell video that took six months. holding the cat. Yeah, that took six months. That's all I did in fourth year for six months was get up and draw Jamie Liddell all day, every day. It was like 3,000 frames or something. It was mad. Saying this is a complete layman of the process. So you film something and then you break it down frame by frame? Yeah, I film something and then say in Flash, the software to do kind of websites or whatever, you'd load in the the video and it allows you to add a frame, another layer on top of the movie file, frame by frame. So I would just have a transparent layer over the top, like a traditional cell. Yeah, I would just use the pencil tool and just draw quite roughly, like a, it was like a rhubarb and custard cartoon or like the AHA video, just a really quick sketchy trace of it. But then... For every second, there would be 25 drawings. It got quite meditative. Uh, medi- I can't even say that word. It was quite zen. Like, y- y- at least I knew what I was doing all day. Like, it was quite, it was quite reassuring because I didn't have to think in a way. It was just turn up and do this. It would slow, slow progress. I remember meeting Steve Beckett from Warp at one of Jamie's gigs and he had done about half of it. And he was like, oh, when do you think you could have this done for next week? And I was like, nah, mate, this is going to take like another four months. <laughs> Saws. <laughs> it sounds like this sort of work is very um, labour intensive. Yeah, I mean, I think I did way more labour intensive work in my sort of early to mid-twenties because I could, I had more energy. And I did actually, I had a great time living in a flat in Glasgow when I was working on a project for Universal Everything, it was called Advanced Beauty, where Matt, Matt's ex-Designers Republic, actually, he asked a bunch of animators to create an audio-visual piece. So I was, at the time, I was DJing a lot and um, not actually paying rent in the flat because we had a visit from the Fraud Squad saying that our landlord was a gangster and didn't own the apartment. So we just went, well, we're going to stop paying rent. So I, I basically could afford to not really work that much and just concentrate on this really labour-intensive animation for Universal Everything. So it's just, it's nowadays it's just down to time and money and there's never enough of either to be able to concentrate on labour-intensive stuff. But I'd like to like look into being able to do more stuff like that, but it's just about finding the right opportunity to do it because it's so labour-intensive. Is the money aspect to do with the labour element yeah, of it? Yeah, I mean, it's just because... It's like paying for your time, not yeah. for, like, materials. No, no, it's just time. Because um, 
because what I said, like if I was to hand draw something, that's 25 drawings a second and that would take me an afternoon. So it all adds up and I've got to survive. (laughs) I have to earn money somehow and it's just, it's, but I mean, I'm starting to collaborate more with people in Berlin. That's why I really love Berlin. It's full of really talented 3D artists that are artists, they're not just techie. Like my friend Michael Tan, he's a great example. We worked on a video for Benjamin Damage and we just we just came up with that idea really quickly and blasted it in 10 days, which was really quite good to be able to do something that good in such a short period of time. So obviously a lot of your design work is pretty music industry oriented. Yeah. But in the past, you used to do things like TV commercials and stuff like this, yeah? Yeah, I worked in, I've worked in sort of commercial advertising now and again. It wasn't really my cup of tea. The type of people that I would have to work with were quite could be quite demanding and difficult. I mean, I was a sort of graphic design monkey. I would just go in and have to do what they tell me with really short notice. And like I remember sometimes working on stuff where we'd have a meeting at five o'clock and then it was like, right, well, you need to do all of this work to present for nine o'clock tomorrow morning and I'd be up all night just doing it. Like, mm. and it was diff- I was quite young at the time, so it was difficult to communicate how long these things take. And it just it was really stressful and horrible at times. But doing all the commercial work definitely pushed me into doing my own thing more. It was like, nah, I don't want to have to do this stuff anymore. Mm. It's just too soul destroying at times. Working in advertising, you just meet a lot of cunts. To be honest, <laughs> I guess it'd be um quite educational in that sense. Yeah. I'm quite glad that I've gained a lot of professional etiquette about having to do things to a high standard and like be on time for meetings and don't say certain things and like how to deal with people. I'm glad that I've got a bit of experience with that because I know a lot of musicians that lack a certain sort of profession. They're not used to like real life this is what it's like and they can be quite difficult to deal with at times. I'm not naming any names. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. That's just most artists. Like yeah. yeah. No, I know I'm a I know I'm a pain in the ass, a, a big, massive pain in the ass to work with at times as well. So speaking of like learning to work with other people, I say that, that Jamie Liddell is probably a good example of, you know, actually directing or something. Mm-hmm. How is that a different experience to like, you know, sitting in front of a computer doing like specific tasks for ages? Um, it's I do find shooting live action quite difficult because you're just dealing with people. I found that doing live action shoots, I've got to like generally film it myself and people manage at the same time. And I was always concerned, I hope they're not bored over there and oh, I've got to get this done in an hour because so-and-so's got to go to work and you've got all these external factors to think about as well as going, this has to be good, I have to get this good. So I've got a wee bit better at you almost have to ignore everything apart from get the job done make this look good and not care about anything else other than that which is hard because I don't want to offend people or piss people off or get them to do stuff they don't want to do but it requires just having the right people around you that can help and share the same vision as you everyone has to be on the same page as wanting to make something work yeah I guess people working with you now are pretty like aware of what your page is. And uh... yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've worked with some really fun people recently that are just dead talented and like to work hard. So, so some of the times that you've been collaborating with musicians, 
I guess some sometimes you're on different continents exchanging ideas and then yeah. other times you might even be in the same room together making it in real time. Yeah, I mean, it's generally remote. Yeah, working with Matt Lone is generally the easiest thing in the world because he just gives me free reign to do what I want. But the last couple of sleeves, he's had the idea and I've just had to assemble it and it's been really straightforward. But in the past, and especially for the live visuals, it's like you just we both just trust each other and like each other's tastes. So it's like we just get on with it and there's not much to and froing. And I think that's why it's been such a fruitful relationship. There's just, there's never any too much. We don't really talk about stuff that much. We mm. just, I just do it and he goes, yeah, that's ace. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, and uh, that's, he's one of my favourite people to work with as well. Because you've, you've spent quite a lot of time together going yeah. around the world recently. Christ, yeah. It's like Beavis and Butthead do America. <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the closest comparison, I think. Yeah, he's great fun. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met and one of my favourite DJs. So we get on really well and we like, we started to DJ back to back a bit more. We did that a lot in America and Asia and it's just, yeah, we both got really similar tastes in music, both like hardcore, both like Detroit. Um, he's a bit more hip hop than me. I'm a bit more techno than him, but it's a nice meeting of minds. So what are some of the, you know, we're aware of like what some of the pressures of being a touring DJ are, for instance, but touring around being the visual guy yeah. obviously has its own set of challenges. What's it like coming to all these different venues over the world with different setups and my things? My main, my, always my main worry is, is the projector going to work? Is the LED vault going to work? So I'm always there dead early making sure that it works because sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, it's generally just down to dodgy HDMI cables. I've had some nightmares where they just it's just down to a shit cable and it's just always a stress. I mean, it's so much easier just turning up to play music, but you've always got, is this projector going to be good? Or, or you spec something and then it's completely different. Like there's been a, there's been a mix-up or something or they've got a black screen instead of a white screen so you can't see anything it's just like uh, it's all a bit yeah it's difficult to try and stay on top of everything because you're doing so many and some some places are great but then sometimes you just have to improvise with what you have yeah right i think these were roughly your words you were describing your aesthetic as real human ultra realism blended with a complete fantasy based reality mm. so do you see that as a larger movement in design in the 21st century? You know, these um, shiny surfaces and saturated colours, is, is that something that you feel is part of a broader movement that's been perhaps enabled by new technologies or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think it's just to do with the computer side of things. A lot of my work exists in the digital realm, so it's not like a bit of paper. Everything's on a screen or a projection, so it's all very bright and saturated. So I think I just turn everything up to 11 <laughs> to get maximum effect. I remember the first kind of pews when I got to play on LED walls, I was just in heaven. I was like, oh my God, this is so bright. I remember having to run the visuals at 10% because the walls were so bright and when I turned it up full, it would blind the audience. I remember turning around a few times in Milan, just being like, Christ, that's way too bright. It's just like staring into the middle of the sun. Um, but I do have, yeah, I don't know, it's like a magpie or something. I'm just, like, attracted to bright bright objects. Yeah. Have there been any 
programs or new technologies that have come out recently which you've been inspired by or have started using really really strongly or is it more like you've become comfortable with a set of tools which you've been using for like quite a while well i'm to be honest i'm still relatively new to use doing live visuals truth be told matt and i were still pretty new to playing together before we went on tour it was like we were winging it for quite a while I was still trying to get my head around the VJ software and we just were making it up as we go along going oh yeah that works I'll try and remember that for next time and constantly developing it my way of doing things is really simple I treat it in the same ways instead of playing music files I'm just playing movie files that I make so it's like I'm playing my own content in the same way that I would DJ I just like layer layer things over each other and I have certain parameters that are audio reactive. So it's really basic and I think that's why it works. It's not overly complicated. It's just mm. quite a natural human interactive type thing that's influenced by what Matt's playing. Would you describe the aesthetic as futuristic at all because i'm interested you know how we're talking about designers republic and stuff like this yeah. and there was like a really strong futurist aesthetic which has now become you know retro yeah. futuristic and i wonder about how that process happens again with these new types of technologies creating something which seems like it comes from a distant future and how that'll change over time i'm not too sure i think i can't see the wood for the trees at the moment i'm too in the middle of it all to really say much i mean i a lot of my influences come from the past, from classic late 70s, early 80s science fiction movies. Big fan of James Cameron and John Carpenter and Stanley Kubrick. So a lot of classical cinematic influences, as well as the very basic early 90s rave videos like Voodoo Ray. So it's all quite hand-drawn, painted type stuff. But even that comes from... I was looking at some Norman McLaren animations from the 40s so this was like paint on cell to animate along um, with music and it was all really really simple but like really interesting because it was so simple yeah so a mixture of like current 3d stuff but a really basic old school kind of aesthetic as well just a real mashup of everything yeah i'm not a purist by any sense yeah sure We've been talking about visual stuff for quite a while now and obviously a lot of people tend to ask you about these sorts of things yeah. but you know that's not to say that you haven't been buying records and been making music since you know extremely young age mm -hmm. what was glasgow like as a as a place for like formative musical experiences oh it was like we were just so lucky to have some of a lot of my favorite djs are all just like my friends that i grew up with like I kind of started hanging about Rubber Dub Records quite earlier on, and that's how I met people like Jackmaster and all the numbers people, and we'd all hang out, and I'd start getting involved doing sleeves for that label and getting involved with Club Sixty Nine and Paisley. Yeah, it was like going to techno school or something like that. It's just everyone was so enthusiastic, and our group of friends were like. Sort of Rusty and Hudson Mohawk and Jack and Claire Fifi and like the Optimal guys and Sub Club and the art school was, I spent my whole life at the art school. Even though I studied there, I hung out there, I did parties there. Like me and Richard from Numbers would put on people like um, Square Pusher and Autecker. So I was doing all that stuff in my early 20s and that was a great, great kind of breeding ground for 
meeting really good people and sort of that's how I first got in touch with Warp really was just through doing events at the art school. Were you specifically interested in the like the visual production of these events or was it just putting like just square pusher on in a room? Yeah, I just liked organising raves. I managed to get a sweet position. I would just because I was quite enthusiastic and I just remember going to the, the head of the student union and being like, Can can we put on Autechre, please? Like you'll make a load of money. I'll organise it, don't worry. <laughs> so and they were like, Yeah, yeah. So it was rammed and I got to do more. Richard from Numbers, that was like get Mode Selector over. So it's when they were still quite small and playing small parties, Mode Selector would come over and people like Mono Lake and um, all that kind of crew. And this had happened in a venue at the university? Yeah, the Student Union, effectively. It was across the street from the Mac building and it's all been done up now, but like 10 years ago, it was still quite grimy. The floor was sticky. The sound system wasn't that great, but I remember having to hire in like a couple of extra D&B rigs for the Autechre show and that was the best sound I've ever heard. Um, I remember the librarians across the street came out thinking there was an earthquake, but it was just <laughs> Sean and Rob doing a sound check. Yeah. You were talking before that you were the only person in your school who you knew who was like into electronic music. Well, making it, I think. Making it, sure. Yeah. There was a couple other kids that liked trance and happy hardcore. They were all the crazy kids. Like, right. So I, I kind of used to hang about with them occasionally, but we'd have a common ground of music. Because I'd wonder whether, like, you know, students are going to these events at, like, their own school or whatever yeah. or not. Yeah, well, specifically in art school, it was great because, like, just everyone from the class would come along to the gigs. It was good. I probably spent more time in the student union than I did in the studio. <laughs> but I'm glad I did because that's, that's what I'm doing now. It's a good education and raving and design. <laughs> Were there any other specific uh, events or venues in Glasgow which really shaped the direction you'd end up taking? I'd spend a lot of time in the sub club. Um, I'd go to Optimo a lot. Like Johnny and Keith are just sort of so important because Glasgow's quite a techno house city. That's the the mainstream is quite 4-4. There's lots of big techno nights, but Optimo were always a bit weirder. I remember hearing before Optimo there was Pure, which was Keith Twitch from Optimo. He it was over in Edinburgh, like he was the first guy to get Jeff Mills or Richie Houghton to come play in Scotland in the early nineties. But famously he would drop Jimi Hendrix and between techno tracks and everyone would go mental. And I think that was sort of the birth of the philosophy of Optimo. It was like, well, let's just play non-dance music. I think it was dance music, but it wasn't just straight up techno. It was a bit weirder. And then they'd go put on White House, a noise act, and then play disco music afterwards. So it was just like, yeah, we'll do whatever we want. And it was on a Sunday night. So yeah, a lot of hangovers on Monday mornings was quite a common thing. Has that mixed up style influenced how you're doing your DJ sets these yeah, days? Yeah, definite. I mean, I remember when I was quite young, I used to DJ at the art school on a Saturday night and I used to like organise that night and I would DJ with Optimo every other week. And I remember Johnny introduced me to Basic Channel at that time. Like He turned up with a bag of Burial Mix 7 inches and it was the first time I heard like dub techno and a really big sound system I was like oh this is great like there's nothing going on in the tracks there's like a kick drum and one noise and a sub and that's it and I was like oh wow that really hit home about what sound system music is and like dub and I still 
love that music a lot. Getting out of Glasgow and touring around a fair bit, and now you've been based in Berlin for the last little while. How has that changed your outlook on what you're doing? I think I'm more confident and happier to do what I want now. Glasgow's great. I mean, some of the best, funniest people there, but I think it was only having removed myself from Scotland I made it made me realise how pessimistic and negative a lot of Scottish people are just by default. It's not a thing to show off or try and be too out there. It's like know your place, and I just I, I found it really depressing after a while. Like you couldn't be seen to be too over enthusiastic about anything. You get beaten down quite a lot, and I was always sort of having to. Yeah, I just found that there was a tension. But when moving to Berlin, I was like, oh, this everyone's dead chilled out and supportive and relaxed. And I think it was just getting away from my peer group. It uh, made me feel more confident in doing my own thing. I love Scotland to bits, but I, I think I needed a change. Mm. Yeah, and getting to see the world a few times was just really inspiring. The, yeah, I mean, the world seems like a lot less intimidating and a smaller place, definitely. Was the the most recent record made in Glasgow or over here? It's made all over the shop, really. The bulk of it was in Scotland, and then I made bits of it when we were away in various countries, and then I finished it off in Berlin over Christmas, I think. Yeah, actually, the title track, Caramel, came right at the end. After I'd, I'd thought I'd finished it, and I sent it to the label, and Mike was happy with it, but then I was like, eh... I bet I could write another couple of good tracks because, yeah, I bet I could because I've done it before. I might as well keep plugging away at it. And then I was really glad that I did because my favourite track in the album came right at the end. And once I'd done that, I was like, right, that's it. And it was a little homage to Cluster. Uh, I ended up calling the record after it as well because it just it seemed to fit the kind of gooey, slightly, I wouldn't say, yeah, I don't know. It's Gelatinous. The, yeah, yeah, it's quite bendy. <laughs> But the, the, the general mood of it is so different to the LP that you had before. Yeah. What do you what do you attribute that to? Just going through a period of like, what the fuck am I doing? I was getting a bit bored of making music videos and just feeling a little lost. And just, I think the music was quite reflective of that. I was living alone at the time in Glasgow and I didn't like that. I was so used to having flatmates and I was just yeah just going through a period of being a bit uncertain but then just getting to go away on tour with Matt was just like oh this is great like this is the best thing ever and it just it was such a confidence boost that I decided it made the new record just a lot happier because I was having a great time mm. <laughs> where the last record had a lot of these you know reamping techniques and stuff like this mm. was the most recent record done a lot more in, in the box yeah it was mainly just done on a laptop yeah, predominantly just soft sense, but like put through quite a lot of distortion or subtle distortion. And I do quite like to create things to make them quite fat sounding and slightly distorted and a bit wobbly. Some of the tracks took a long time to get right, to get them to sound right. I mean, I spent a lot of time mixing and EQing. Quite a lot of help, a really good bit of help from Quedo, you know, Jamie from Planet Mew. He almost served as like an executive producer on the record he would help out a lot make suggestions about maybe add a bit of reverb there or make that sound a bit quieter he was really good to work with mm. and uh, Mike Paradinus was just he just 
let me do what I want and was just really honest about a lot of stuff which took a bit of getting used to because Mike calls a spade a spade he does not sugarcoat anything he would just be like nah it doesn't work it's shit try something else and I was like oh I just spent two days in that I'd go in the huff for a while but eventually I just got used to how it worked and the more I did the more confident I got and I created a better workflow so I would I would be able to churn out tracks a lot quicker. Mm. What aspects of the workflow changed that made it happen quicker? Because some people, you know, really hit their stride when they figure out how to do things really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I would just set up some instrument racks and use the same reverb, use the same delay. I would limit my palette so I didn't need to think about what sound to use. I'd maybe make two or three tracks using the same setup and then pick the best one. And I think my next project so it's going to even be more restrictive more like i've got one synth this delay this reverb and that's all i'm going to use and i'm just going to write tons of stuff based around those parameters just to it's just about creating it quicker because this record did take a long time it took four years and i went down quite a few wrong paths i made quite a lot of dancey ravey stuff that i thought we'd might fit on it but after chatting to Jamie, it was like, and Mike, it was just like, I need to stick to what I'm good at at the moment because I can write catchy little melodic tunes quite straightforward and it's quite, I find it quite easy. Whereas writing dance music, I'm still not very good at it because it requires a bit more discipline. You've got to follow more rules, I think. But um, yeah, it might be something I'd look into later on. It's funny how dance music can work in that way when its constituent elements are so like obvious and staring you in the face but that somehow makes it more difficult yeah like good example robert hood his stuff's amazing and he uses one cent kick drum and a hi-hat that's it and it's funky as hell it's just i always compare robert hood to like a mondrian painting or something Mm -hmm. it's just like there's a couple of lines and two colors and that's it but it's beautiful and it works and that, that to me is minimal, like proper minimal techno or like basic channel. I just find it really impressive to create so much character and soul by using very little. I guess that's one of those cliches which you can never understand how big a deal it really is. Like l- less is more. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's such a huge thing. Like you can never overestimate how big a deal it is. Yeah, that's like our mantra in art school was kiss, keep it simple. And it was only after a long time of writing music that I remember what my tutors were saying, it would pop into my head. I was like, well, there's no real point in trying to have eight different melodies. Just do something with a couple of fingers and then stick a bass line under it and then that's it. That's all you need to do. Yeah, it was good that I was using my kind of art education to influence my music. And yeah, it was nice to be able to, there was a crossover. Do you, do you think having the, the confidence to really follow that less is more thing, do you mm. think that's just more of a psychological thing? I th- think it takes a while just to have the confidence to know what's good. But that just takes time and that comes from doing. You just you become self-referential. Uh, like having done a track that works, I'll sit, I'll sit there and go, why does that work? Well, that's because there's only like a synth noise and a pad in that and it has a really emotional effect so I was like well we need to do more of that then mm. I don't need to do anything more I just sort of develop stuff I've done before I think there was another thing that I read that you said where someone was asking you about like recording techniques and how you made things and you're yeah. like oh I, 
to be honest, like I can't remember yeah. how I did some of the processing. Yeah. But that's almost a way of, of, of avoiding repeating yourself. Yeah. But is that is that important to you? Are you d- deliberately trying to keep developing or are you happy to like focus in on what you consider like your strengths? I think I'll, I do repeat myself in terms of certain techniques. I like doing certain things. But at the same time, yeah, I do literally forget how I make stuff sometimes because I'm not too bothered about the process. If it sounds good, it sounds good because sometimes you'll do something and then it'll sound good and then you try and recreate and then you maybe try and copy that specific technique again. Then it just won't work. So you're like, oh, fuck it. I'll have to try something else. Yeah, it's all quite, it's all very improvised and free flowing. I don't, not particularly disciplined. When it comes to generating sounds, it's more like how to stick them together. The construction side requires a bit more of a streamlined approach. Mm. But I think it's it's fairly obvious listening to the new record that it's got like quite a easily understandable mood or something. It's just like yeah. quite quite apparent what the what the emotion behind it is. Yeah. But it's it, it almost made me think of something you said about drexia where it's like this combination of melancholy and euphoria at the same time but there's like a sense of stoicism and like get, getting on with it amidst that as well and that is kind of like a, a hint of that at least in this new record i think you can't be happy all the time yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean there's more somber moments more reflective darker stuff in the record some of the influence and where i got some of the sounds are come from pretty dark horrible places for instance, the Manhunter track, that's a kind of homage to the film, like the original Silence of the Lambs. Like, I love the feel and the look of the film. It was really a blue, kind of quite weird, dark, sexual tension type horror crime thing. But the xylophone sample actually coincidentally came from an early 90s documentary about Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal. So I thought, this is nuts how I've, like the vibe of the track was coming from a horror film about a serial killer that's linked to cannibalism. But then randomly I was watching this documentary and I thought the intro music was really lovely and bright, but the content was fucking horrific. So I kind of, I ended up just joining the two up randomly. But yeah, that's the kind of the darker side of things, I suppose. But I guess the ultimate takeaway is that despite it having this sort of shadowy content within it, it's got the flip side of that simultaneously. Yeah. I think it's generally a, a very honest reflection of what I'm like as a person. I don't know. I can be a bit miserable at times and then be really optimistic at the same time. I just think it's what everyone's like. 